retrogrades. How to re-evangelize the de-Christianized West. Support us in any way you can, most especially by your prayers. From an authentically Catholic perspective. Right-minded, righteous group that's equal in strength to the radicals. From an authentically masculine perspective. You and your friends versus me and my friends. Bring it on. Welcome to Rules for Retrogrades. This is Timothy Gordon of TNT fame with Dr. Taylor Marshall. I've been honored over the last year to bring you over 100 videos of dialogue, which is what we're going to do here with Dave and Chris. I'll introduce them in a second. And we've been covering the church. Uh, both the church and the world have moved into a brand new era where the visible church has refused to lead the world. And this has necessitated, for those of you who have watched TNT videos, continue to watch Dr. Taylor Marshall's channel, a kind of response by the laity. Today, I'm introducing uh, the Rules for Retrogrades, which is going to be both a book and a new set of videos, dialogue videos with Dave and Chris. Before we introduce just what a retrograde is, I have to introduce the boys that are working with me, and I'm going to go to... Mr. Chris Plants first, the ginger here on my left. How are you, Chris? What's up? Why don't you tell the world about yourself? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, and uh, thanks for uh, including me in the uh, retrograde camp. Um, yeah, so a little bit about me. Tim and I, actually, uh, we met. Uh, I was working at John Paul the Great Catholic University. I left there, went to go teach at uh, a high school in Bakersfield, and that's where uh, Tim and I met. We um, ended up becoming good friends. I remember the first time. I was like walking into his room and I see this big stop abortion now sign. I was like, oh man, me and him are going to be friends. And uh, so that's how we met. But um, I grew up in Los Angeles, um, went to Catholic school, lost my faith, went to college, had a reversion to the Catholic faith. And it's been about, I think, 12 years now since I've been back home. Um, I'm uh, back in Los Angeles. I live in Los Angeles. Um, I guess a couple things to know about me, I, I'm really passionate about the evangel evangelization of LA. Um, really passionate about the story of Scripture, the Bible, and um, really focused on the future of the church. Um, you care about the evangelization of places outside of LA, though, right? Nope, just LA. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, no, okay. yeah. That's right. yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it's a it's a passion of mine also to promote the um, this idea of. Um, what I call apostolic subsidiarity, which I don't even know if that works. But the idea is that we have so many people that want to go and evangelize the world, you know, people that are starting all these, these like worldwide movements. And they're like, Oh, I'm going to start this program. And this program is going to get in all the parishes throughout the world. And one of the things I'm big on is, you know, being called to a specific people, being local, helping out, um, at the local level, evangelizing the the people that are around you. Anyways, so yeah, so I live in LA, and um, I do care about the evangelization of all the world, including the people in the Amazon, and including the people in the Vatican. And uh, so um, yeah, I'm passionate about uh, Jesus. A and lot. Church, so, and it sounds like you're passionate, just passionate. I'm kind of passionate. Yeah. Yeah. So, but so, so anyways, that's me. Yeah. The the people in the Amazon that you know they just had a synod about that. We're going to be talking about it. 
yeah. today, they might have some slightly different ideas than you have about how to evangelize the peoples in the Amazon. Because uh, Bishop Krautler, who's running the show over there, says that he's proud he never evangelized a single person in the Amazon. Good never work baptized. Doing that. Never baptized, right? Didn't he say baptized? Yeah, yeah. Never did a single, never did a single soul's work. To um, anyway, so let's get to young Dave over here. Uh, this is my brother David Gordon working with me, co-author on two books. Dave, why don't you tell the world something about yourself? Sure. Yeah, my name is Dave. Tim's brother. We are uh, presently working on two books together: "Rules for Retrogrades" and "No Christian Feminism." Um, so kind of like Chris, I, I was a mid to late college revert to the faith. You know, I, I was um, kind of fell away from my faith, at least in practice. Uh, probably more of a casualty of high school also, casualty of Catholic high school. Um, and so I, I was kind of a pagan through mid-college, then had a, a reversion, um, went to law school, and then went and got a graduate degree in theology later on. Um, you know, I've worked in parish ministry for for a number of years. I've also been involved with certain Catholic apostolates as uh, an apologist and researcher, uh, like Catholics United for the Faith. Um, so I put myself to, to the service of the church for years, and hopefully we can continue that trend with this podcast. Yeah, and we have in the opening line of our, our book a byline, Dave, we, which it's called Rules for Retrogrades, I think it's going to be out before our feminism book, which, which people out there who are waiting, um, I, think, I think I sort of misinformed you. The, the order is reversed. They should both be out in early 2020. But our Rules for Retrogrades book, which will, will kind of ape what's happening on this show, or at least it'll, it'll track the, the organizing principle of this show because there are 40 rules. You'll see them today when we apply analysis to... Uh, that makes it sound so tech. When we when we analyze what happened at the Amazon Synod, uh, we're going to give not only a little bit of a an overview of how it ended catastrophically, but we're also going to uh, fill in the average viewer, the average listener out there, on some of the details you might have missed because there was so much catastrophic nonsense happening over the last three weeks that a lot of nonsense that would otherwise be considered noteworthy and mention worthy fell between the cracks. So we want to remind you, put all this stuff in order, give you a nice synopsis summary of just what's going on at what I call the Shamazonian Synod, or even more aptly, Vatican III. But, but first, um, in view of our forthcoming book, Rules for Retrogrades, Dave, how about we have, and it was really your idea, an acknowledgement to, I wanted social kingship of Christ, right? But you said no. Let's track it more with rules for radicals. And uh, Alinsky himself, who we're mocking through the entire book, we're doing so in strategic terms, uh, dedicated rules for radicals, a lot of people don't know, to Lucifer. So who better to uh, make an acknowledgement to at the beginning of rules for retrogrades, which we're going to define over the next half hour, by, than by acknowledging St. Michael the Archangel. Did you want to read to us what, uh, what you wrote there? Sure. Yeah. And, and again, the point was to kind of ape what Olinsky said, but to take it in the right direction, because obviously he famously dedicated um, his book Rules for Radicals to, to Lucifer, who he deemed the first radical. So it seems fitting that 
on our show um, and in our book, we should we should do that in reverse and kind of set things in the right order, dedicating our efforts to preserve the church, to preserve the world, to its patron and defender, St. Michael the Archangel. So without further ado, this is the acknowledgement from our Rules for Retrogrades book, and uh, let's hear it out. Lest we forget to give a reverent acknowledgement to the very first retrograde from sacred scripture and tradition, the prince of the heavenly host who fought valiantly to preserve the holy name of God in the face of diabolical sacrilege, and who did it so effectively that he cast like lightning the deceiver of the whole world, Lucifer, and his cabal of demons from the heights of heaven into the pits of hell, St. Michael the Archangel. So there's a lot there. Uh, when we, I think it's really important that we define just the way we're using the term retrograde so that, for one thing, when the book comes out, people will know. But it's the, the, the titular of this show, Rules for Retrogrades. What we're doing is setting out um, a, a playbook for the basic, aggressive, uh, masculine approach to not just Roman Catholicism, because you, you hear guys say, oh, uh, this is how to do Roman Catholicism from a masculine perspective. The, the feminization of the church is the largest problem in the laity and, and feminism itself within the church, but in the world. And the blending of our approach to the church and the world, meaning cult, even culture and even politics at the secular level, is paramount. It's of first importance. This means that among other fellow travelers, the neocons, you know, the so-called neocons in the church were faithful brothers and sisters in Christ kind of, you know, JP2 uh, pontificate enthusiasts. And on the other side, the so-called trads, we, we form a kind of geometric mean. You know, Aristotle says virtue is a geometric mean between the vice of deficiency and the vice of excess. It means that you're going to be usually on issue by issue, we retrogrades will be closer on one side to one or the other. And, um, I think the, the one rule for retrogrades we should share here today is the, the cardinal rule against fragging any of these people, right? So I, I just did this debate with Trent Horn, and uh, I think it's paramount to say, well, okay, he, I disagree with the guy more than I thought I did walking into Catholic Answers, but he's still a brother in Christ, so we're not going to frag him. We're not going to stab him in the back. We're not going to throw grenades. We're going to disagree, take what's good in what he said. And show that this, I think, the widest swath in the church right now with young people, with Zoomers and Gen Xers, I can't say as much for the boomers, but with Zoomers and Gen Xers, the widest swath in the church, whether they know it yet or not, is they're dying to be retrogrades, which is, you know, maybe you go to your Latin mass, hopefully, uh, we all like the Latin mass here. Maybe you're stuck without a Latin mass and you're going to your, you know, your, your, uh, you know, pres Presbyterian-like Novus Ordo, whatever it is, there's a big group of young men, young women in the church that are scoffing at what's bad in it and are crying out for what's good in it. We're a geometric mean between neocons and treads. And a lot of times, you know, I mean, yes, do, do I lean traditionalist? Obviously, everyone's remarking this way to Trent Horn. But issue by issue, what I noted as I did the show over the last year is on a lot of cultural issues, Halloween's coming up, you know, a few days after the airing of this show. Uh, there, there are people that want to be, issue by issue, either in and of the world, 
we would say that of the neocons too often you're being of the world as well uh, or on the other side a lot of times it seems a little bit like um traditionalists want to be both neither in the world nor of the world and and the retrograde i mean let's let's talk about it some i i love halloween i love christmas i want to be in the world not of it what what say you guys Yes. Yeah, so, Go ahead, Chris. Well, one of the, I, I'll get back to that point, but one of the things I, I wanted to kind of highlight is that in your guys's book, you're, you're contrasting yourself. A retrograde is in complete, is the complete opposite of a radical, right? A radical is someone that's going to break with the traditional norm and is going to launch something new, right? It has new all over it. Um, uh, a retrograde is someone that is, going back to the past. So it's going to have principles. It's going to be guided by principles. It's going to be guided by a prayer life, a liturgical life that is constantly trying to go back to the past, back to scripture, back to tradition. And so, yeah, the, the recognition of the, the beauty of the Latin mass um, is just one instantiation of the fact that really there are tons of retrogrades already out there, many of them young, that are already wanting to go back to the past. And one of the things I, like I said earlier, I love the scriptures. You know, in, in Exodus 19, when God separates Israel and he's like, okay, I just brought you through the Red Sea and I'm now going to make you, I'm going to give you a law. And this law in Exodus 20 and so on is going to basically make you a holy people, someone that's set apart from the world. And this is getting back to your point. Someone that's set apart from the world. You're in the world, but you, you're marked out from the world in a very specific way. And one of the ways that you're marked out is this thing that I have done in and through. Uh, it, it, it's what I've done through you in the Exodus. And so you have this. This is why the liturgy is key, right? The liturgy has to be the center of the retrograde idea, which is that this liturgy looks back in order to look forward. So we are looking forward to the future, but only in the sense that we want to return to the sources, scripture, tradition, the ancient liturgy. That's the only way that God has always asked his people to move forward and be in the world, but not of it, which is recalling what God has done in the past, reclaiming our ancient traditions and the symbols and um, what's been passed on to us. And so, um, yeah, that's that's sort of my two cents of being in the world and, and not of it. It's a liturgical norm. It's a biblical norm. And it's this constant re recalling of what God has done in the past. Yeah, there's mainstream value to the Latin Mass. You show uh, the most secular kid you meet in college, uh, hey, come to the Latin Mass with me, you know, and they, they're they like, that's dope. I, that's actually cool. This is like religion. You show some uh, you know, atheist or agnostic kid, your 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 typical boomer uh, Novus Ordo mess, and they're like, "Yeah, this is what I thought, dude." That they're, they're, they're just snickering. And and Tim, I saw you snickering through parts of the mess. You know, it's like, yeah, this is, it's got worldly value. And what I noticed over the last year, uh, Dave, we'll, we'll we'll go to you in a sec, but it's that there's the, the the Great Commission, Chris, to put it in terms you like, is all about making mainstream what's actually true. And often right. there's a, a kind of resistance to uh, not 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 that all. I mean, I I share this skepticism that that most trads have. I, I share a lot, but there's a kind of resistance to wanting to make it mainstream. I'm not much of an optimist, 
So I don't know how mainstream it can get, but I do working with young people for the last 10 years. I know that I've brought, I've converted several young people by just being like, look, don't go to the boomer mass, you know, uh, go, go to the Latin mass. And they all think it's dope because it is. So you can skip that middle step, like at the Council of Jerusalem, when, when you could skip being uh, a Judaizer and go straight from being a Gentile to a Christian. You can skip the middle step when you're evangelizing and go straight to bringing kids to the beautiful patrimony of the church through the old liturgy. That's, that's how to make people in the world not of it. Right, right. I, I think one of the things we need to stress, though, um, is just the commitment to the truth, to the commitment to being faithful here. It's not, I don't want to put myself in a camp as a trad. Um, I don't want to put myself in a, in a camp as like uh, a novice ordo Catholic. I well, just want to be a faithful yeah. Catholic. Right. Yeah. And that's what a retrograde is. It's an uncompromisingly faithful Catholic. Have allegiance to some nomenclature, to some to some silly camp. It's just about being faithful to the magisterium, the constant magisterium, the traditions of the church, holy scripture. These are the things that make one a retrograde. Um, as as far as liturgy goes, you know, I, yeah, I think one of the problems today, why you see so many people just kind of snickering through it, or, or teens being put off by by the current. The, the Novus Ordo, is it's almost come to intertwine faithfulness with just silliness because of all the Peter, Paul, and Mary music and and the, the Eucharistic ministeresses in open-toed sandals and mom jeans um, that presume to touch the body and blood of Jesus Christ with their or hands. Tevas. Or Tevas and khaki, yeah. khaki skirts, sorry. Yeah, right. Exactly. I, and so the bad music, the overall irreverence towards the blessed sacrament that you see, and obviously we, we know from what the church teaches that the, the, the music should be befitting the solemnity of the paschal sacrifice, which is taking place at the altar every mass. And liturgy is the privileged place of preaching the gospel. That's what the church teaches. So it doesn't have to be... Um, you know, there's a really faithful instantiation of the Novus Ordo that's very close to Sacrosanctum Concilium, where Latin is retained in places, chant is retained in places, the organ has pride of place among instruments. These things aren't bad, and no youth would go in and snicker. It would still be a, a very efficacious and viable place of evangelization if that were what the Novus Ordo looks like. But instead, it's been hijacked now. I would say by um, by people who weren't faithful to the church, who weren't faithful to the original vision for Sacrosanctum Concilium, and it's been made into like a Bob Dylan folk rock concert by people who don't believe in the real presence, and that needs to get cut out. There there needs to be a serious and solemn um, element of faith that's placed back in to to young people, like like Tim was saying. And I think the reason they're drawn to the Latin Mass is because a property that always inheres in the Latin Mass is its sheer reverence for the Eucharistic sacrifice that's taking place. Well, yeah, there, I mean, there's a reason we call that the unicorn. Uh, of course, if you if you get to a unicorn Novus Ordo, then yeah, you're you're re reasonably uh, unoffended, certainly. But but uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of 
of course, we've gone through this a lot on, on TNT. There's, there's overwhelming evidence that the real intent of making the change was bad. They said they, they know what they're going to do with it. Um, so I, I, I've never been one that, that bought the, the lie that, uh, or the line, so as not to beg the question, that there was any kind of good intent beside, behind making the change. I mean, uh, you know, the, the new mass has been a tree that's borne nothing but bad fruit. Yeah, on, on the whole, of course, these are reasonable conversations that can be had. We're not going to be talking too much about them on this show because uh, because, you know, it's a fait accompli. What's done is done at this point in the church. One of the, the great debates that, that I would get into with with some faithful Catholics, most of them traditionalists uh, over the past year was on the hermeneutic. How what do we do with uh with catastrophic Vatican II, the catastrophic uh, new mass, and the, the destruction to the faith that it's really caused, according to many, by design. And so, again, on the one side, you have uh, the hermeneutic of rupture, which has been embraced by both, of course, the strong liberals who are atheists in the church. And it's also been embraced by the traditionalists, the hermeneutic of rupture, they just say, oh, we have to just start anew, go all the way back and treat the church uh, in a sui generis way that we've never treated it like we need a, a reboot, a traditionalist reboot. We can't do that. Um, on the other extreme is a uh, hermeneutic of continuity that vastly misunderstands what a hermeneutic is, and that's the, the neocons, the JP2 crowd that say, oh, yeah, Vatican II and the new mass and all this stuff is automatically in continuity with with the rest of um, the church's passion. I mean, that's clearly wrong, right? That's clearly wrong. Everyone knows it's wrong. Uh, the hermeneutic of continuity that I embrace, that got some neocons mad at me, got, I think, more trads mad at me, is hermeneutic of continuity number two, meaning we're going to apply an interpretive aid to basically everything that's happened in the last 50 years, which essentially lines it out, right? So this is another way I just, over the past year, I was noticing as I proceeded, you know, two or three times a week on TNT, like, these are really important conversations to be having. And um, I'm a backward looking guy. And I think the, the best way to be backward looking is through the hermeneutic of continuity number two, where you basically say we have to line all this stuff out. Well, and because it's Tim, can I jump in real fast um, on, on something? Just the hermeneutic of rupture, basically is the creation of an entirely new religion for for like ad infinitum because right. basically everybody if they want can go find a self-serving scripture or sorry a magisterial passage you know a full comment from a pope one on an off day or something that seems like it supports what they say so if they really want to do hermeneutic of, of rupture and dig in their heels on a point they can find some ostensible there is some point by a pope or the cdf that ostensibly supports what they say and basically that's thinly veiled relativism because right. yeah then everybody gets to have their own viable opinion and there's plausible deniability um if you're not looking at the magisterium as a whole and you're basically cherry picking uh magisterial statements that throughout the years made may have been even errantly pronounced or or um, 
taken out of context, then you can support what you're trying to say with those things, although in a false way. You have to look at what the church teaches as a whole. And basically what we have now, even having debated a lot of these um, flaming feminists, is they'll go through and they'll find some bit of dicta by a pope and and throw it in your face and try and have that stand alone as if it cancels out you know 1970 years of magisterium and tradition and scripture and so yeah it goes i'd say there's even a third element building on what you're saying of um the hermeneutic of rupture you have it with with liberals you have it with trads in a way and sedes in a way and you also have it just with with those who are kind of willful or contumacious about a certain issue. And usually people are because it's very hard to reconcile. It's impossible to reconcile being a good Catholic with modern Western culture. You're going to yeah. be seen as a pariah to the culture if you're a good Catholic, you're, uh, and especially in the realm of femi- feminism. Yeah, the hermeneutic of rupture is embraced on uh, the fringy left. And it's really, it's really a, a mainstream left position in the church, national Catholic uh, distorter types. They're all hermeneutic of rupture. It's a new church. You get it on the super, super, super fringy right. And again, yes, I don't really mind that I'm, I'm characterized as a trad. I, I'm, I'm much closer to a trad than a neocon if I have to use the, the silly terms. But they're really silly because on the fringy right, uh, you get an equal and opposite hermeneutic of rupture based on, I think, some legitimate errors. And, um, and this is something that we can talk about going forward, but it is the erection of a new church, right? It is the construction of a, a new church out of ex nihilo almost. It's hopeless. And that's the thing. There's another, uh, Chris, what do you think about this? I, I identify being a retrograde as a, a kind of geometric mean on another level. Um, uh, this came up in my debate recently with Trent Horn, where he said doctrines can change, can reverse. Uh, oh my gosh, what do you say to that? That that's just that's Catholic 101. Disciplines can change in the church; doctrines can't. That's my view. That's the retrograde view. Another way of saying it is, it's just the two thousand year old backward looking Catholic view. Uh, Chris, see what you say about this. Neocons in the church, like Mr. Trent Horn flirt and i guess more than flirt with the idea that doctrines can change like disciplines on the other side a lot of the trads i've spoken to over the last year i'm I'm closer to them than trent horn on most issues but but they actually flirt with the idea that even disciplines cannot change uh the way doctrines can so they're both like two it's it's disciplines can change doctrines can't disciplines can change for the worse yes like uh the mass i believe changed for the worse you're never going to get me saying that, you know, even the best Novus Ordo is as good as the TLM. Uh, I would never believe that. But uh, but it can be changed. It's validly changed. And we have to accept disciplines being changed. Now, when it comes to Trent Horn saying doctrines can't, what? Well, I, well, I, I don't, I don't, I was shocked when I, <clears throat> when I heard him say that. I was like, Shocking. what? Yeah. But, um. I was trying to give him a favorable read. I didn't. I was confused as to whether or not he was equating discipline with doctrine. So, because doctrine's just teaching. So if he's like, okay, well, this was in canon law. This was a doctrine. This was a teaching. 
Um, but traditionally, we've distinguished doctrines from disciplines. Um, that's why we call them disciplines. Um, but yeah, I think I think that the essential question is, um, what are the sources of the of of the church's teachings, and um, how closely are are our own opinions to scripture and tradition. I think that there's on both sides, there's, there's an easy, let's go back to this council. Let's go back to that council. Let's, instead of saying, let's use this council to read sacred scripture, sacred tradition. Um, and you brought up scripture in that particular debate, which I thought was important, but it was almost like scripture was totally left, left to the, to one side. And it's just arguing over this council, that council. Um, this is why I think sure. Dave, Dave Verbum from from the Second Vatican Council was key. And Dave Verbum was really closely tied to Sacrosanctum Concilium. The two were like united. Those were supposed to be the found. Everything was supposed to be read actually through Dave Verbum, from my understanding. Um, this return to the return to the sources. Now going going to this whole hermeneutic of continuity, the hermeneutic of rupture. I do think that it's that it is interesting. You have a man, a man like Karl Rahner, who is very influential with the drafting of, from my understanding, if I can remember from Vatican II class, um, with Dei Verbum. And, uh, and, and then almost immediately after the council, you have no return to the sources. Of course. I mean, everybody wanted to return to, everybody wanted to return to the sources. That uh, was a byword for skip scholasticism. Let's go to, uh, the patristics. And it was just, it was, Typical uh, leftist shadow play, right? Yeah, that's all they, it was. They the never no returned to the sources. Well, I won't say they because I mean I think one of the only ones that did it was Benedict, um, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger. But eh, was, especially, nah. especially nah. with Rahner, especially with Rahner, you have a very different read him in a positive light in that way. But so. Um, Benedict yeah, I, wanted I, to get around the scholastics too. Ratzinger wanted to get around the scholastics as well. I mean, everyone go watch Bishop Barron's. Uh, we don't have to get into it in in great detail now, but Bishop Barron gives uh, with with full endorsement of the Communio guys. He gives a great grouping of Concilium, Communio, and then who is on the sensible side because uh, those are really the two kind of center left and left parties after Vatican II. It was just your boy, Garagou Lagrange, and like one of his friends at the council. Uh, the votes were always like a thousand to one, which is ironically what we got in the Amazon Synod. Just, just incredible, like super majorities that you don't get in other more natural parliamentary bodies. Um, yeah, I, I think just to get through uh, another uh symptom of being a retrograde just a, just a catholic that's that's backward looking that loves thomas aquinas and loves aristotle loves loves scripture and loves the apostolic period of the church and the patristics it it's also has stuck out to me over the past year when you apply uh the, the teachings of the church to social issues particularly um issues of subsidiarity that neither group in the church the so-called trads or the so-called neocons understand subsidiarity worth a, uh, a hoot, right? They don't understand it at all. And everyone's tripping over themselves to get around subsidiarity. They don't understand markets or, or liberty, which is what we're called to by uh, Catholic moral theology and moral philosophy. On the one side, you really have a 
a return by by too many trads to outright collectivism uh, um collectivism uh, a collectivistic borderline socialist economy political economy and on the other side the, the neocons are uh, give you sort of a the typical puritan american capitalism as a surrogate for the sacraments whereas the catholic patrimony again has this very rich tradition of right-minded sacraments are sacraments labor is not a sacrament but because of liberty and because of virtue ethics uh, markets are are good and work in a small uh, in a small republic in a small place, and this has erupted over the summer with the with the uh, Amari French debates. I kept saying I don't have my voice represented here, my truly Catholic patrimony of the Church retrograde voice represented. Where I I like markets. I don't like uh, you know tranny reading hour or whatever it is. I I don't like any of this stuff. But there's a way to do it. The best expression ever in the history of the world, of Catholic subsidiarity is the Tenth Amendment. And, and uh, Pope Pius IX knew this, which is why he, he wrote to Jefferson Davis on his own and all this. The Tenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution is a beautiful expression of subsidiarity, the most beautiful expression of subsidiarity. Um, another thing that, that both parties, uh, Dave, Dave, you should weigh in on this, are really, really weak on the so-called neocons, the so-called trads is, I'm just going to kick it to you. I don't even need to say anymore. They're both completely epic fails on the issue that plagues the Catholic laity more than any other issue and the world, feminism. I, I was, I've been very disappointed how much feminism has crept into, I knew it was in the boomer, you know, neocon Novus Ordo church. It's really there. Um, with the trads. And I'm not trying to frag anybody. I'm just saying, people, reassess yourself. There is tons of feminism, even when you go over to your traditionalist friend's house for dinner, right? Am I right? Am I crazy? No, that's right. And basically, here's how it plays out. The West is so saturated with feminism that if you're not actively against it, and if you don't know exactly what it is and how it manifests itself in the culture, then you're a feminist. If your wife works, you're a feminist. Um, if you have to come home and do dishes, you're a feminist. If, you know, you're getting orders barked at you at your home um, by a, a domineering lady, you're a feminist. And that's, that's basically what it is. I look out and I see neighbors, I see friends, and it's basically that the wife is the de facto ruler of the home. The husband goes out and probably provides the majority of the bread because, you know, women like that. Sociology shows us that women, um, in, they feel more comfortable when the man earns more. They like the man to be smarter than they are because, that's, of course, that's part of headship. You know, Aquinas makes that argument in the Summa Theologica that the headship entails the men having the having predominate in, in the male because um, that that's part and parcel of leading. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they, they kind of, they might like that when you'll see me and friends and family relatives that, um, yeah, that. Matthew, I, my, well, I don't want to, I don't want to name a name. I was about to name a name, but on Twitter, a major traditionalist Catholic just last month, tweeted out a double mortal sin in my book that there should be a national maternity, paid maternity leave. And I said, 
you're no trad. Okay, this is this is nowhere in the patrimony of the church, the tradition, right? This is nothing. How, how dare you call yourself a traditionalist leaning person and say that one, the great breach of subsidiarity of forced nationalist uh, national wage uh, uh, hegemony uh, uh, on employers should be applied to working mothers. I mean, where do you where do these people get off calling themselves traditional? Dave, this is is hit you in a in a personal way, right? In the in the last couple of months, because you were the headmaster of a uh, traditionalist school, right? And they they didn't like that you were writing a feminist book. I I, I thought you could, I mean, can you, you want to say something about that for a second? I prefer it's not to go into it at this point, just because you know, too too recent of a, a wound, perhaps, but. Yeah, it's it's out there in, in traditionalist circles. It's out there. You see, it it's just the pattern of the imperious wife uh, barking orders at her husband. And you went over that in your Matt Fra Matt Frad interview. So I I don't want to repeat it ad nauseum, but it's it's for everyone to see. It's the everybody loves Raymond syndrome. Um, so even like I was saying in trad households, the, the husband might be allowed to be the main breadwinner, but, but things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, things are all skewed. And when he gets home, you know, he's ordered in addition to his full-time job to come home and share the load of doing the household chores, dishes, laundry, all that. It's an expectation now. So I, I see a lot of cucked men getting home and like feeling obliged to do dishes. Now, none of us are heels here. We're all married and we all have lovely wives that um, we want to help and serve. And God knows that when my wife has, you know, been out of commission or sick or has needed my help, I'm glad to volunteer my help and do some household duties and chores, dishes, um, even whipping up a frozen lasagna or, you know, doing laundry. That's fine. No, no one's saying it's anathema for men to do any of these things. What we're saying is that as part and parcel of feminism, they, they were trying actively to, to flip, to invert the, the household duties of, of men and women, um, the, the societal duties of men and women, too. So that necessitates, and the feminists openly admit this, you know, you see third feminists writing about this, that they have to have men relegated to doing you know, 50% of the household chores. So right. that all bastions of male privilege and female, you know, sex roles or what they call gender roles. But, but of course, sex and what gender you, are different. What do, you guys, what do you guys feel like is your strongest? Because you guys both wrote separate separate halves of the book. How many chapters are there? In seven. Yeah, seven, seven chapters. Seven. So you split it four, three or whatever. Um, 3.5. 3.5. Seven divided by two, Bob. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so what do you feel like is your strongest argument? I mean, because there's a lot of stuff that you guys are throwing out, but what do you feel like is like the main, the main reason why you're writing the book well, and let, your strongest argument for it? Let the characterization of the book stand for itself, or else we're going to end up doing a whole feminism book. It is the main problem plaguing. Uh, the laity, right? Um, the the overthrow of the patriarchy is how Dave's been saying this. Look, just look into the literature, man. He's been telling me for years before we wrote the book. Feminism is not, you know, an overthrow of mean or bad things, which would make it de facto good, which is how Trent Horn was desperately attempting to characterize it in our debate. And that's an epic fail. 
it is the attempt to overthrow the patriarchy, i.e. Christianity and even Judaism and even uh, Islam, though. Good luck to him. If you can overthrow Islam, go for it. <laughs> but I mean, it, it is the main problem in the laity. And, and this is what, what bugs me about neocons and a lot of a lot of trads or trad leaning people is they get on the the LMNOP issues, right, which is we're, we're going to talk about this in a second. Vatican three, the uh, the Shamazonian Synod. We're, we're going to transition here in a second. That's the main problem in the the uh, Roman Catholic Episcopate and the, the, the higher ups even than that. The Roman Catholic uh, Curia is is LMNOP, right, is the cardinalate has been infiltrated by homosexuality and it, and and worse than that still you know you, the the ephebophilia pedophilia satanism stuff i mean that this is real we all thought it was a joke 5 years ago and and you know stories break but in and it's like you know some estimates that are reasonable say 4 out of 5 that is reasonable to characterize elementop as the main problem of the episcopate fine but in the laity right and in the world those numbers are not nearly so spiked in the world and in the laity one person at most out of a hundred is identifies as lmnop what what's happening with just this is anecdotal as i told frad 99 percent of people trad neocon uh national catholic distorter obviously it's all soft-pedaled feminism so I, I don't I don't know. Uh, I, I have a good I have a good transition point. I actually do think there's a close coordination between what's happening within families and what's happening within the church. I mean, remember St. Paul drew the analogy. He said, you know, um, wives be submissive to your husbands as what the church is to Christ. You see the same thing happening within the church today. So many people act as if they're not subject to Christ, the head. The, the, right. And so you have this rebellion. It's like so many times you read all these reports, you read all this stuff on Twitter and you're like, it, we are the bride of Christ. We're subject to Christ. You can't rebel against the head. You can't right. talk smack about the head. You can't um, go and create your own teachings. You can't run the church how you want to run the church. You're subject, subject to Christ. So there is, there is a close correlation. I feel like it was a good transition point to the synod where you do have this sort of, well, we're going to do our own thing. You know, Christ is mentioned a little bit more in this, this, this closing document. But still the question is, where is the head? Where is, uh, not mentally, where is Jesus Christ in all this? And are we being subject to him and what he's commissioned us to, to do as yes, his the, bride? It's the Christological foundation for the age of absconding fathers, the crisis yeah. of fatherhood that Benedict the Sixteenth talked about really, really effectively right before he, our father, absconded, right, and left us with this abusive stepfather of a pope. So I, it, it, is, it is strange, but there's a very close, uh, I wouldn't even call it an analogy. I think it's an ontological real connection between the, the uh, Christ and his bride, the church, and this Pauline equation of the husband, who is, in our feminist analysis, supposed to head the, the, his own bride. And our, our critique of feminism is, you know, almost as often a critique of men as women, because men are the ones that are, that are really failing to... Well, yeah, to they let it happen. They, right. they let it, you know, you have this image of the, the women that r roared and they 
they clamored for all these different rights and these different, you know, to, to claw their way into having a societal role that's perverse and that's, you know, um, that, to having masculine power. But they didn't do anything. Like, a hundred men voted to give them whatever rights they have right now. It was through... Um, it was through men rolling over and giving women, uh, giving into feminism. Yeah, congressionally, if you look at it. In the 1964 Civil Rights Act, um, these things were passed by, I think there were like three women involved with the 64 Civil Rights Act out of all of Congress, so out of all the House of Representatives and the Senate. I mean, Senate comes from the Latin for old man, interestingly enough. So these people ran over or they rolled over and capitulated. So there's no... Because ma- they were old? Or, or that's just a etymological. Just because they, yeah. <laughs> they were wimpy. They were senile? Um, yeah. Well, it, it's really remarkable. And uh, here on Rules for Retrogrades, we represent, I think, the, I think it's going to be, even, even from our first show, yeah, you know, we're just getting rolling. Please, people out there, support the show. It's it's a brand new endeavor, obviously, and new endeavors, uh, as the Disney movie Ratatouille says, the one thing you have to do is support the new if you see its merit. So please do support us. We will almost new as a new be... show, not like principled. Support all things new because sure, we are the retrogrades. Sure. Well, yeah, we're the we're the retrogrades looking backward, but we're we're going to be the loudest voice out there to restore. Catholic masculinity. Every few years, there's like a campaign for this, restore Catholic masculinity. But then they don't want to touch these issues, right? I mean, right. they don't That's want right. to touch. They say restore Catholic masculinity. And then you're like, okay, so what can we do? We have to attack feminism. It's evil. It's wicked. And they're like, oh, okay, we can't say that. That'll make people mad. Masculinity is we're not afraid to make people mad. We're out here saying, and we're not, we're not just being provocateurs. You know, people, people uh, associate this kind of thing with you know, Milo Yiannopoulos, who who published my first book. We're not we're not we're not going the Milo way where we're just being provocative, very talented. It's faithful. It's being faithful. It's, faithful. it's being fi- yeah. It's, it's, it's being exactly faithful. I mean, this is literally the story of the Bible. I mean, if you just read the Old Testament from the beginning of Israel well, really the beginning with Abraham and then all the way through with Moses and Israel, the one thing God wants, the one thing that always gets Israel in trouble or the people of God in trouble is unfaithfulness. The only thing that God requires, he doesn't require awesome YouTube shows. He doesn't require whole lots of money. He just requires one thing. He doesn't? <laughs> yes, he does. No, he requires one thing and it's faithfulness. That's the only thing. Everything else will be taken care of. So faithfulness. Sure. And the early church saw this. The early church didn't have a social standing. The early church didn't have a lot of resources, but they had the one thing that they needed, the spirit of faithfulness, period. And they wouldn't buckle. Well, a lot did, but they, they wouldn't buckle on that. <laughs> they wanted to be faithful to – they wanted to Many be – Many did. Many. Yeah. Because they were, they were being persecuted. But it also created a realm in which people had to make a decision, faithfulness right. or, or, not to be, or not to be faithful. So. It's important that that important that point that that uh, Dave brought up at the very beginning. The number one thing is faithfulness. That's like that's it. That's literally the story of Scripture. Period. The pistus Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. He was faithful all the way to the end. So it's beautiful. Yeah. No. I mean, I think it's a natural point of contrast, transition type contrast to what, uh, by my account, is the Shamazonian Synod just wrapped up five and a half hours ago there in Rome. This will this will debut Monday, 
in the late afternoon, but the Amazon Synod uh, wrapped up a couple hours ago because we're recording this on Sunday. So we're going to go live eventually, but we're, we're starting out with pre-records. And this means we will be on the chat talking to all of you Rules for Retrogrades fans out there. And this is the opposite of faithfulness. I mean, in the most fundamental Old, Old Testament uh, yeah. conception of the term, literally, we had at the Amazonian Synod, we were expecting unfaithfulness in the form of uh, a female diaconate, which is, has made it into the final relatio vote of, by a count of like 137 to 30, supermajority. We were expecting the very probati, so-called, which are the, the men that are going to be allowed to marry using the hollow out provision of need. And it's just a, it's a Trojan horse that passed by a supermajority of 128 to 41. Right. And, and they even put uh, in there that it can be possibly contemplated for the more universal wider church. There's a sneaky language right at the end there. Um, it, it's, let's I see. Saw that. I saw yeah. That. Somewhere in favor of a more universal approach to the subject. So that's, that's really what the issue is. Which is really, really uh, honest of them. As far far leftists will always be very honest because they don't even have to do that. This is what Vatican II taught us. You don't even have to make the proviso that hey, this might get hollowed out eventually into the universal. They just they they punch a hole through something like they did with communion in the hand, which was a plan since before Vatican II, and they didn't even say this might eventually be universalized. It just automatically is. You punch a hole in something, you start wiggling your finger around, all of a sudden the holes. Uh, ten times larger than it initially was. So well, they we always use an emergency. They always use an emergency. This is the the uh, yeah. Never let a, a catastrophe or an emergency go to waste. The Saul thing. Yeah, crisis. Rahm Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel. Chicago. Chicago. Uh, you know, double double disciple. Uh, disciple of a disciple of Alinsky. But so we expected all that unfaithfulness. The shock at the Shamazonian Synod. Vatican III, turned out to be the more fundamental, more surprising, re really conscience shocking paganism. I mean, paganism. We didn't see Pachamama anywhere that I could tell today, looking at this in the closing ceremony. We thought Pachamama was going to make her, her big return, you know, uh, dried off with her hair blown dry after her dip in the Tiber River. <laughs> but she didn't make the return. Um, you know, the, the, the final relatio vote was, was bad enough, but Pope Francis assures us that she was, she was fished out of the Tiber. I, I don't believe that for a second, by the way. Um, nevertheless, from the opening ceremony, we saw something that's unfathomable. We want to give uh, Rules for Retrogrades viewers a nice overview of all of the little, and by little I just mean subtle, uh, bits of what ought to be world historical news from an ecclesial perspective, from a world perspective of paganism, uh, lack of faith, lack of faithfulness to God in a really Old Testament sense, uh, starting with that opening ceremony. On, yeah, commandment on number one, Exodus commandment chapter 20. Seriously. Exodus chapter 20, you can't make this stuff up. You can't make it up. This is literally, it's, it's commandment number one. And, and uh, you know, you have the paganism in the Vatican Gardens, the, the whatever it was, October 4th, the eve of, of the synod, Francis is just sitting there, right? And people, you know, even even faithful reporters were being more more uh, charitable in their interpretation of Francis's silence. And I think he just prayed a prayer 
than I'm willing to be. He didn't look uncomfortable to me at all. He looked a little awkward because he was in the hot sun, supposedly a hot day. He was there for an hour, but he just let it go on. Uh, gorgeous George Gonswine joined in the disgusting, vile, pagan nonsense, right? Gorgeous George uh, of, of Vatican fame. And what do you say about this? What do you say about this? I, I don't know what to even do. We are beyond the pale. We're, I, we're literally having idolatry throughout three weeks of a, a Roman synod. Yeah, well, Pope Francis has now assured the faithful that there was no idolatrous intent with the Pacamama statues, which I don't understand how that works, because if you bring a statue of a pagan idol into a church and set it before the altar, uh, how does one say there's no idolatrous intent? Can we bring a statue of Baal into a church and be absolved of this crime since we just... I just thought it would be, you know, cool to decorate a church with, uh, with, a uh, Idol. Yeah, uh, like a golden calf, you know? We're going to decorate, we'll put the, the golden calf next to the altar. On the other side, we're going to hang a, a, a statue of Medusa. And, uh, you know, I think it really ties the room together. Is that, are we really this stupid that well, people you can... believe this? I don't even care about the intent. It seems inherently wrong to bring a statue of a pagan idol into a church. We, we, we also have to keep in mind that there, there's a reason why you have to feel as a church responsible for this. It's not just like you cannot say as a faithful Catholic out there, well, that's their problem. They're going to be judged on their last day. That's not how the, the story works. Israel was exiled precisely. I was just reading Ezekiel. I grabbed my Bible. Ezekiel, interestingly, when he reflects back on the exile, he says the reason why all the people were exiled, including the prophets, including everybody that was faithful, was because of certain acts by certain men, especially in leadership. So you have to you have to do something. You have to do something to sort sort of merit the graces necessary because it's not just an act that affects someone in their eternal salvation. It will have consequences for all of us. Even if you weren't involved, this is a whole church corporate thing. And so you have to take responsibility for it. The hope is that the sacramental order, I don't know the theological basis of this, it creates a kind of wall of separation between the priest, the priestly class, the sacerdotal order, and the laity or, or whatever you call the, uh, the lay equivalent among the people of Israel, you know, as, as against their priests. I certainly hope that the sacraments are, are more of a guarantee. I, I think they are. And so I think you can, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't criticize because, you know, fraternal correction, because this is outright pagan idolatry in the Vatican. I am criticizing right now, uh, hopefully constructively. But uh, I do think that it is a little bit more these bishops' individual problems very soon. Many of them are old. So it, it's, it's a good point. But at the same time, I, I I, I really hope that when, as Bishop Schneider just uh, released his based letter, and he he outright compared this to uh, golden calf worship, in a very scathing letter. I mean, that, that guy is so so based that he's really emerged as maybe one of the church's very most prominent leaders, along with a couple of cardinals. 
I hope I hope we enjoy some some protection from the wicked, foul, fell, disgusting, vile actions of our leaders. You know? Yeah, I mean, but you you have to you what I'm saying is I'm exhorting people. I'm saying you can't sit there and say because the temptation is to sit there and say, well, again, eschat you're looking eschatologically. These people, okay, they're gonna be condemned, they're gonna be judged, and so on. And I just know the church is going to be protected and you just sit back. No, you have to merit the graces. This is how Catholic theology works. You have to merit the graces to restore the fa- the favor of God. You have to you have to sacrifice, you have to do penance, you have to fast, you have to pray, you have to pray extra rosaries. You have to you have to um go out there and, and encourage the good priests. You have to go and I don't know teach Bible studies, uh, donate money to important apostolates that are doing great work. You have to do something. You can't just sit there and say, "Well, that th- I mean those bishops did that and those people did this," and so so it's just like I feel bad for him, but God will eventually handle it. No, no, no. It's going to affect you. It affects the whole church. All of Israel was exiled in 586 BC. The temple was destroyed because of an act of idolatry. So, yeah, you 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 can't sit back. You have to do something. You have to be fasting. You have to be praying at the very least. Yeah, fast and pray, but also take the bizarre, grotesque statue from the temple of God and throw it into the you know some fiery abyss. Don't do it in the Tiber next time, for Pete's sake. Get it and blowtorch its grotesque face and nude physique. You know, I, I don't want to see it. It's an affront to the faith of. Uh, of all Catholics, get it out. And Still, so too yeah, much, we, yeah, there's too much prayer. You don't want to say too much prayer, but in a never too sense, much prayer, yeah. No, well, there's prayer. Prayer is what ignites the prayer. There's untimely prayer. There's a time for praying and there's a time for, for action. Turning and defacing yeah. foul idols. Right. Which these people did. You know, some people get a little hyper reactive out there. I mean, we're not Monday morning quarterbacking, doff of the cap to the brave men that went and took action. And, and uh, when you're taking an action that's actually illegal, uh, Cardinal Mueller just went on Raymond Arroyo's EWTN show uh, World Over and said this. This was a brave action. We salute these people, like, like Dave's saying. When you're actually in the midst of doing something that is, according to Mueller, illegal in the positive law, but but you know, admirable according to the divine law, which is what these men did, destroying an idol. You're you're still feeling squeezed by the positive law, right? You you're you know you're feeling the pressure of human law upon you. They know they're gonna get in trouble. So I, I'm appreciative that they did what they did. We'll learn as we go, retrogrades, next time there's pagan idolatry, yeah, take a Louisville slugger to them or 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 better yet burn them. But we, we here on Rules for Retrogrades, obviously it should go without saying we salute the men that did this and uh, a Vatican happy hunting for these guys. Uh, you, you're never going to be able to catch them anyway. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that's one of the, the, the highlight. I mean, the, it, I think this is the important thing to point out to retrograde viewers. This is the only significant act in the last seven years where we've stood and watched mouths agape feeling utterly disempowered where we all cheered. I mean, when I heard it, I, I was, I felt, it felt so good. It felt. Well, let's see right. how merciful uh, the Va- the Vatican is towards it. You know, the the pontificate of mercy. Let's see how merciful uh, Pope Francis is towards these people who are acting surely in good faith to yeah. get what they thought was 
even if the media is going to say and the Vatican spin machine is going to say, well, these aren't idols. They were just a symbol of this uh, robust Amazonian culture. Um, I, yeah, like, let me, fine. Let me but these men were. Go ahead, Chris. No, no, no. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you at all. But but let's even if they aren't, even if they aren't. So when the Jews were exiled, when they came back, you had groups like the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they looked back and okay, according to wasn't because we had a big military, wasn't just because we, um, you know, our soldiers gave up or whatever the case might be, they didn't do a good job out in the field. It was because of unfaithfulness, period. So when they came back from exile and the remnant returns, you have the Pharisees and, and other groups that are like, okay, we need to now, and this was a tradition, you build a fence around the law. So you have the law, right? No idolatry. Then you build a fence around it to make sure. So an extra laws that you add on to make sure that you don't breach that, that main law. And Jesus, by the way, did not do away with this. Jesus is built. Jesus builds a major fence. Remember when he says, yeah, if you, it, uh, you've heard it said, if you sleep with someone, that's not your wife, then, you know, you commit adultery. Um, I'm saying if you even look at a woman who uh, is not your wife in a lustful way, you commit adultery. So what Jesus is doing is taking this tradition. He's building a fence around it. He's saying, hey, don't breach this law or else you'll breach the, the major law. So even if this wasn't, even if the these statues were not idolatry, I'm trying to say that even if they weren't, there were too many people that thought it was. And so so you you still want to remove the statues for the sake of, of confusion or the sake of uh for the sake of um people that are like paul says people that might be thinking about that this in fact is idolatry even if you know it isn't even if the vatican said it wasn't you still want to remove these statues because of the cause of scandal right yeah, scandalizing all of us we don't know what's going on for all i know that you know there's an abomination set up within the vatican that people are being allowed to worship alongside the eucharist you Wait, know, that's bothering not, everybody's conscience. It's not debatable. So I, I, I thought I thought we we're using this as a, a kind of rhetorical ploy to have a laugh um, at, at the, the ridiculousness of, of what Francis offered when he said, well, it's it's an idol, but it's not idolatry. That's you can either believe me or your own lying eyes. As Francis likes to do this, force force you to choose between what he's saying. It's clearly a lie or your own lying eyes. He told he affirmed uh, five days ago that this was Pachamama four days ago, sorry. This was Pachamama herself. That's a, it's a well-known mother earth goddess. It is an idol, so let's, let's just remove all the doubt there. Just, you, can't, you can't do an act of cowardice without, uh, without a, a cowardly intent, right? Or else in, in the Aristotelian sense, it, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be cowardice, you know? If it, it would be some incidental act that looked like that. They brought in idols to worship, and they were doing the as I said, with Taylor Marshall, the Wayne's World, um, old, old, uh, you know, South American style idol worship uh, prostrate motion. We it don't know what the Vatican's absolute... intent is, though. I, I'm not sure if Pope Francis knowingly welcomed these into the church for them to be worshipped or if he just thought naively that they were a symbol of um, the Amazonian culture and therefore wanted to have them present for enculturation purposes. Yeah, the Vatican, well, I think the Vatican that's what his wasn't statement. even sure as to what it actually was. Well, re, okay, re, right, Repam, right. Repam, the group that, that was responsible for this, uh, Bishop they, Krautler, yeah. they, they literally, they, you know, they were on the take from all the same people that, that uh, really all the same villains 
that the Vatican itself has been on the take from Ford Foundation, right? Over $2 million in the last 10 years. Um, they have all the same friends. They invited them in. Gorgeous George Gonswine was joining in the ceremony and Francis allowed paganism in his midst, pagan worship. So there's, there's no debate, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not an interesting debate. It's an intellectual turd. He was watching it for an hour. And then when someone destroyed the idol, he, re he had it rescued. Right. He was the head of this. So there's not it's not an it's not an interesting conversation. It doesn't matter what the intent might have been. It recipes a or It speaks for itself. It was idolatry in the Vatican. Let's I mean, no, but no, but, but my point is my point is that you have a group of you have a group of mainstream media Catholic outlets that kind of toe the the line in between, you know, uh, uh, someone like a, a Michael Voris or or a um, Taylor Marshall, and then they're mainstream media, so they're they're not going to go one way or the other. They're kind of kind of hang out in the middle. Even if what I'm saying is, remember, use Paul's logic here. Paul says, "Look, you can eat you can eat food that's sacrificed to idols." He's like, "It's just food, man. If you're hungry, you want the chicken, just eat the chicken." But he's saying, mm. "But but even if it's not." If, even if it's not idolatry, remember, Paul says it's not idolatry to eat the food sacrificed to the idol. If you're hungry, just eat it. But he says, if it causes scandal, if it causes scandal, which it did, the, the idols caused scandal. That's what I'm saying. I'm trying to reach out to those people in in the middle that haven't quite come, come that way. I'm saying, even if it is, it caused scandal. Yeah. And on that principle alone, Paul says, don't eat the chicken in front of them remove the statues from the mitt their mitt so i'm not i'm not disagreeing with you i'm just I'm, I'm making an argument a biblical argument that you have scandal here and that's why these statues should have been removed and this is what Mueller got this is what burke got this is what a a, a few other cardinals and bishops have, had got that no you have a scandalous moment here and this is why it needs to be removed whether or not the vatican vatican actually knew it was going on I'm making an argument they still should have been removed because of the scandal. It's a right. Pauline argument. I'm not making the argument. Paul's making the argument. Sure. I'm just saying yeah. they knew what was going on. It's a, it's a good point, though. I mean, they, they definitely knew it was going on because it's gone on for three weeks. I mean, they, they spread well, all their crap out worship. on the floor. No, it is. I, have you seen that? They spread their little carpet out, and they've had, like, like me getting my, it's a my right. basketball it's a cards. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a right. It's a full-on pagan right. It's been happening all throughout the, the three weeks. So it's not... I mean, look at all the other, put it, put it in the constellation of these facts. This will also comprise our review for people because we're, we're running long here. You had that, you had the open idolatry in the opening ceremony in the gardens, the eve of the thing. Throughout, uh, this is in no certain order. You had this Scalfari interview where Pope Francis, uh, according to Eugenio Scalfari, claims that he is an Arianist. He tells him in La Repubblica magazine, this is his sixth interview with the guy who doesn't take notes and reconfigures interviews. The next day after this, it was right at the midpoint of the synod. Um, the next day, the Vatican mouthpiece comes out and says, he doesn't deny it. He says this was his interpretation of what he heard, which is closer to an affirmation than a denial. You have the catacomb pact uh, shortly after that, a reenactment of the 1965 Vatican II era, rededication of the church in these uh, essentially uh, Latin American terms of, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, quasi-Marxist terms, a rededication of the church. They did an even more 
egregious catacomb pact this time where they swore they would remake the church. You had uh, an interesting uh, tip of the hat to those JP1 assassination theorists like, uh, you know, Taylor Marshall and I covered it. I was skeptical. I think I said about nine months ago that I thought this is a 30% chance, but you had a, a man, Anthony Raimondi, uh, uh, part of a squad to go into Vatican City and allegedly kill JP1. He's, he's owning up to it. He published his book, New York Post, covered it. This happened right at the middle of the Amazonian Synod. Connected but not connected. You had Bishop Erwin Krautler admitting right in front of Michael Matt of the Remnant that he wants a female priesthood, not just the diaconate. Yeah, he's he's come out segment. publicly, yeah. He's, he's, he's yeah. openly saying he wants it. He yeah. also bragged at the beginning, the first week, this is the same guy, Erwin Krautler, kind of the main character at the Synod there, that he has not baptized a single indigenous. You know, how, and these people, by the way, are, are claiming that they receive the Eucharist every week in the Amazonian region. How are they how are they receiving Eucharist if they're unbaptized? This is the, of course, the sham justification for the very provati letting uh, priests be non-celibate. You yeah. have the, the one good thing in all of this is Pachamama drowned, right, as, as uh, Church Militant reported. The, the ray of light. Uh, people getting involved and backing up their prayer with action, like Dave was talking about. And, and, and at that time, the Amazonian bishop who was not invited here, Amazonian bishop of note, uh, Bishop Jose Luis Alscona, says that this is a demonic sacrifice. And he also said before the Vatican had made it official, this was Pachamama, uh, the, the demonic sacrilege at the Vatican. He says, uh, what did he say? In those rituals, there's the devil, there's magic. Our Lady is not the Pachamama. She is the Virgin of Nazareth. So he was rejecting this before um, the Vatican had admitted it was Pachamama. Thank you. They've done so three times since then, uh, while Catholic Answers was still saying, oh, this is just the Virgin of the Amazon or whatever. Francis later admits it was an idol. He said it was an idol without idolatry, which is silly. Um, Shortly, the last week, shortly ago, Pachamama was allegedly given CPR and resuscitated, found in the Tiber, according to Pope Francis. This is a lot, isn't it? What do you say about all these events? All this has been shoved into the space of three mere weeks. Dave, go ahead. Chris, I was waiting for you. Um, yeah, let's... I mean, you almost have to take them one by one as far as uh, it is kind of breathtaking that something like pagan, whatever they are, whether they're worship ceremonies or just like cultural ceremonies that border on on spiritualism or worship are allowed to happen inside of a church. I, I really don't understand the intent of the Vatican um, in all of this. They they did know what was going on. They seemed to at least turn a blind eye to it, if not encourage it. It happened through apparently their sponsorship. I really don't know what to make of it. You know, um, I think I'm a. I think we're all a little bit in the dark. But it's it's continuing this trend of quote enculturation and dial another quote dialogue that has been um at the forefront of really remaking the church you know the remaking of the church has taken place under the guise of dialoguing with cultures 
which really just means that the church is absorbing these cultures, not that these cultures are absorbing the church. So instead of making these pagan cultures more Christian, these these pagan cultures are making the church more pagan, I think is what we can take from it. And that needs to, uh, you know, it's, it's a disturbing trend and it's been going on for 50 years and it needs to be curtailed. And this is pretty much the, the climax, the, the zenith of that trend that, I think we've seen so far yeah. just ever it, with it, as far as people being out and open about, I mean, even if you look at the, at the pre synod report and what they're going to try and do with forswearing, um, imp, you know, the imperialism and taking away the cultures of indigenous people and the spiritualities of indigenous people. That sounds like basically a they're swearing off evangelization. And yeah. that's pretty much what we got because the culture is not becoming more Catholic, more Christian. It's becoming more pagan. And essentially we're setting up these base, foul, primitive religions as on par with, with the Catholic faith, which they are not. But what do you make of you guys? You guys keep saying I'm not trying to quibble, but you guys keep saying well, we can't read the intention. You have Erwin Krautler who's at the no, center you can't. of all this. You, you can't. Saying, yeah, you, you can do it by action. Is intelligible. Well, right. yeah, it's the action. You have He's to look saying, at the action. I don't baptize a single one of these people. We're bringing them in um, to do a pagan ceremony. We're going to watch you can, some yeah. of the higher ups, like Gorgeous George, are joining in. And they bring them and they let them do it, you know, 21 days in a row, 20 days in a look, row. Look at, think, think, of a, think of a biblical example, perfect example. The reason why I think it's around 722, the Assyrians, remember the prophet Isaiah, he, he sees Babylon and he sees Assyria and he's like, he sees, and then the third sort of point is that he sees Israel's unfaithfulness. Israel then makes a partnership, an alliance with, I think it's the Amalekites and the prophet God himself says, I can see what you're doing. Now they, they could have, a, they, they had somewhat of a good intention. Remember they had a good intention. Their intention was, well, we want to enter into this alliance, even though we, yeah, we know it's a foreign alliance because we want to protect our borders. We want to protect the Assyrians from coming in. Even then it was an act of unfaithfulness. God could read the intention. The intention was even, even if the intention seemed good, the intention was, well, we want to protect our borders. God saw the intention as an act of unfaithfulness. So you can read, the prophets right. saw it too. You can read the action is like, you're entering into these alliances, these foreign alliances. You keep saying that your intention is to protect the borders. But really, the reason why Assyrians going to come down and destroy you in 722 or around 720 within that decade is because of your alliance right here. You know, so... I, I mean, I'm making a couple points, but the point is, is that no, 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 you can read the intention by the action. I mean, the prophets yeah. did it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, even there's... when the, even when, uh, the, the leaders in Israel were, let's say lying to him, the prophets were like, no, we can actually see what's going on in your heart. You're act. It's actually an act of unfaithfulness. Although you'd have to be a prophet to be able to discern that. But I think you can still you can still read the intention by the actions. I mean, or else you don't have anything else to go off of. I mean, in, in a court of law, you kind of have to go off of. I mean, how does it work in in a law court, Tim? You have to. How do you read the intention? You gather the facts, the external actions of the person, right? You gather other evidence and. Sure, you almost never are given an intention. No one ever goes up and says, "I, you know, 
struck this person with the intent of killing them. You, you, yeah, you in. The prosecutor demonstrates it I- intent because um, you know there are specific intent crimes. Yeah, unless you have an admission, which is very rare. It's rare. Then you don't. Uh, the prosecutor is basically charged with demonstrating the ill intent of the defendant who won't accept it. So that, that's really all I'm saying. Would and I, how do they do would that? Would I like? Though? Like how would how would you do that? Just like a two acts, so, right? Through looking looking at their private correspondences, their private email. Here it would be repam is wicked. Right. Uh, they, they have wicked friends. The Ford Foundation's given them over two million dollars to uh, rather openly destroy the evangelical arm of the church and destroy the church writ large. I think it's safe to say. And um, so and, and Krautler has bragged that I, he was literally bragging and laughing. I've never baptized a single soul and I don't want to. And, and Pope Francis is saying we need to learn religion from pagans. They should not learn religion from us. So, so come on, get real. What I like about what, um, what I like a lot about what you were saying, Dave, that I think is maybe the final point for identifying what is a retrograde, and we're, we're getting it right from this Shamazonian synod, which is closing, maybe it's a good final thought, is living with uncertainty. Uh, I, I want to hear what each of you guys think about this. I think the retrograde, uh, the, the true Catholic that's, that's backward looking, that's, that's, you know, traditionalist in its sensibilities but but uh willing to dialogue with all parties is also willing to live with an amount of uncertainty and i I talked about this a great deal on tnt and i think i think people connect with it because we are entering a new phase of the church i think i i opened by saying something like um the, 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 the church in the world have moved into a brand new era where the visible church refuses to lead and, and insists on being led by the wicked, by pagans, by atheists, by communists, by Freemasons. And so we have to, there's an admission there. It doesn't mean we have to sit on our hands. We shouldn't sit on our hands. We should do things like destroy idols. Everyone needs to do this. Yeah. There will be some copycat priests at Novus Ordo parishes. I'm expecting around the next couple of months in in America. If you if this comes up at your parish, you must smash that idol. So we're not saying sit on your hands um, out of uncertainty, but it's also intellectually honest and humble to admit this is a new time in the church. And I, I get into this conversation more with with trads than with neocons. I'm fine saying that in this kind of new bad era, I don't know exactly what everything means. People know I'm willing to speculate some. Uh, you know, I've done and you don't made, have, you don't made have a cottage to. industry over the last year doing it. No, you don't, you don't have to speculate about silly, silly conspiracy theories, but you have to admit these, this is a constellation of stars here. It means something. But, but it is good to say, okay, I don't know what. I don't know exactly what it means if... I don't know what it means that Benedict XVI is still quiet. I don't know why he left the pontificate. I do know that these are all, you know, they're dark, darkling in their, you know, what they insinuate. I don't know exactly what it means that, you know, all the cardinals that have been incardinalated now are, are promising uh, uh, Francis to. I don't know what the St. Gallen Mafia exactly means. It's bad and I'm open to it because, you know, you get Beneplanists and, and all, all kinds of people saying, oh, they're, they're counting, okay, how many cardinals would be valid if it really was Benedict? If the cardinals are dying out, could we lose the pontificate? 
it's fine to say, I don't know, but you shouldn't. I think it's better to say, I don't know. And that's, that's what we're saying here. That's what an honest Catholic says. But we do know that when an idol's placed in our midst, destroy it. We do know to focus on a daily rosary, faithfulness, faithfulness. faithfulness And that's because we have the pattern of the biblical narrative. I mean, this, right. This thing, think of the Jews living in the first century. They're under the big thumb of Rome. They've returned, but God's presence hasn't, they've returned to the land, but God's presence hasn't been restored to the temple. They have corrupt priests. They have Herod the Great, and they're under the big thumb of Rome. And somehow they're supposed to wait on a Messiah that's supposed to come and free them from literally the most powerful empire ever. There was out expecting Messiah still to come. And then there was a remnant still hoping for God to act. And that's Blessed Mother. That's St. Joseph. I mean, literally, right. we are Blessed Mother. We are St. Joseph. We're in the midst of where there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uncertainty. But we know one thing. God is all not just our faithfulness. God is always faithful to his promises, period. He's going to act right. and he's going to do it swiftly. And it'll include his judgment. Okay. And it'll include his mercy. But his mercy only comes after judgment. That's how that's how the biblical member think of the flood. Judgment comes, but the righteous are pulled out of out and right. through that. So just remain faithful. So that you can be prepared, not when the Messiah comes, we already know he came, but when Jesus decides to fully and finally act. Remember, this is what Paul meant by mysterion, the Greek word for mystery, the unfolding of mm -hmm. God's plan throughout salvation history. And oftentimes what the people of God have to, root, have to do is be daughter Zion. They have to be the remnant. They have to sit and wait and, re get and be faithful, of course, and pray and fast. But they have to be ready that when God acts and when the time comes to be faithful to the covenant and expect God to extend his judgment and mercy to the church. That, I mean, it's the, what I'm saying yeah. is it's intelligible in the Bible. If you're reading the Bible, you're like, wow, this is a new this is new for the church. We're in a we, we've entered into a period of uncertainty. Well, if you're in a period of uncertainty, then you're in the Bible. You're literally just like Jesus or just like Mary, just like Joseph. Just like John, just like Paul, you're, you're sitting and you're waiting for God to do something because Rome is over there doing their corrupt stuff. You've got Herod the Great, you've got corrupt Pharisees and leaders and stuff, and you're just, you're surrounded with uncertainty. But the one thing you know, God's faithful to his promises, period. That, that's the, that's right. the hope, that's the only hope we have. If this is a purely, our hope is in whether or not we're going to continue to throw idols, that's important. But our hope is ultimately on God will not have his name blasphemed. Exodus 20, Ezekiel talks about it, I think in chapter 14, 15, the whole reason for judgment is for the sake of the Lord's name, that he's the one God over all the nations. Right. Well, it, it's even, it even appears in mm -hmm. Dave's acknowledgement to our Rules for Retrogrades book. It's the holy name of God that we are charged with defending. And, it, and it's both prayer and action. And it's prayer and action in the face of uncertainty. Exactly. This is yeah. the retrograde way. I, you know, the neocons often sound uh, fatalistic when it comes to... Uh, fatalistically optimistic if that's a thing you know yeah. you, you, there's well, no hope yeah. because they can't acknowledge a problem sometimes you know you talk to trads and it just sounds like uh nothing but the benedict option retreat and let's keep the church really small let's abandon the great commission um and i'm saying we need to keep going and we need it through a kind of cultural political action while we acknowledge this is bad this is the greatest crisis in the history of the church and the retrogrades out there Please support this show. Please unite. Take subsidiarian local action. And um, that's what really, that, that's the mission statement of this show. We're, we're, we're trying to gather all the faithful, you know, Novus Ordo Parish, Latin Mass. You know, we love all of you guys. 
And I know that um, the, the Taylor Marshall show is a draw from both. And I want to say what matters is what we do now in our private lives and also our public lives. We still have the Great Commission, evangelize people with the patrimony of the church, the Latin mass, the, the, the beautiful aspects of the erstwhile past. So please, people out there, everyone knows we're getting off the ground here. Support us. We're going to put our uh, Twitter feeds up, Chris, Dave, myself. And um, we're also going to put our, our Patreon accounts up. Please support us. Uh, it, everyone hates to be a panhandler in the street. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's bad. But this is the only way this works. We want to continue to bring you good programming. We're going to have our friends, Michael Voris, Pat Coffin, Taylor Marsh is going to come on. All our base friends out there, red-pilled Catholics, who are angry, have had enough, and want to go. We got a fourth, a fourth uh, quadrille there, camera angle. So we're going to have some good guests on this show. But we do need support. Uh, I mean, literally, we, we need uh, the Vox Populi within the Catholic Church to rise up, support outfits like ours and others. But so, even, even the Trent Horns and the other people that we're trying to... I mean, I, I I know you're about to close, but that dialogue between you and Trent was was huge. Those two groups need. We want to pull this. Yes, we want to get to. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. No, yeah. I mean, people out there don't. You know, my people don't. I mean, criticize arguments, but it was really brave of Trent Horn to have me on. It was yeah. really brave for Matt Frad to have me on the more mainstream, closer to the center groups, and. What they did, particularly Trent Horn, because Catholic Answers has been so anathema to having on traditional-minded people like myself. I, I, like I said, I think I'm the only traditional-minded guy that's been given a microphone in Catholic Answers. They have some traditional-minded staff. But to, to, to invite me in and have me do two podcasts, everyone should go listen to those debate podcasts I did with Trent Horn, Feminism and Death Penalty. They're really, they're really popping debates. Um, it, congratulations. But we need more of it. Congratulations. We need more of it. We need more of it. Not, not less. Not less. Yeah. More. We, and, you know, we'll, we'll debate anyone. Two or three of us at a time. We'll, we'll, we'll come. We'll debate anyone on, on the Novus Ordo Church, defending the indefensible, uh, you know, trads, you know, taking issue with some of, some of the uh, things we, we may be saying. We, but we should not shoot at each other. We should never frag each other. We should live with uncertainty. That's the Catholic way. Um, that's that's the scriptural way. So uh, please, retrogrades unite, support this show. And uh, does someone want to does someone want to lead us out? Dave, you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, no, um, not not at the moment. All right, everyone. God bless you. Jesus, Mary, Joseph, be with us on the way. We'll see you in two days. God bless.